Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. New updates today from the FDA on the baby formula shortage. What's their plan for recovery? And when can we expect to see those shelves stocked again? We do have adequate supply for at this point. It's just that the supply is not necessarily in the right place. President Joe Biden reverses another Trump policy after an urgent request from the Pentagon. What role do schools have in discussing transgender topics with children? One Ohio mom tells us about secret after-school clubs where parents are forbidden to go. And as my daughter left the room that day, her art teacher pulled her aside individually and said, remember, you don't have to tell your mom. The latest updates on the supermarket shooting in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 people dead. The city's police commissioner says the shooter planned to keep on killing if he had escaped. And Chicago also saw a number of deadly shootings over the weekend. Now, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is tightening the city's curfew for teenagers. To move that curfew back on weekends to 10 p.m. There's now a path forward to recover from the baby formula shortage. That's according to the Food and Drug Administration's latest comments on the issue. They're saying parents should start seeing a return to normal in a few weeks. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the latest. Parents should find it easier to get their hands on baby formula over the next few weeks. That's the anticipated timeline from the FDA. This will uh, gradually improve over a period um, of a few weeks, but working closely with Abbott to get that uh, plant that was shut down uh, up and operating as soon as possible. Abbott, the nation's largest baby formula supplier, is cleared to reopen its shuttered plant in Michigan in two weeks. The plant was shut down over unsanitary conditions. Although the producer says it could take up to 10 weeks to recover the loss in production. The FDA said today the supply of formula is there, but work needs to be done to get it to the shelves. Now the administration plans to ramp up its imports from other countries. What we are looking to do is make available that supply from abroad. As a short-term fix, the White House has loosened up restrictions on WIC, a government program that allows low-income mothers to buy formula. For now, WIC users can buy any brand of infant formula. And right now, Congress is working on a bill to grant WIC an emergency authority so that they could respond to issues like this more quickly in the future. In addition to this, Congress also wants to pass more money to address the issue. But as of right now, it's not been detailed exactly how much money they want to spend on this and where that money would go. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Since March, the Department of Defense has been saying it may add troops in Somalia over a growing concern of increased terrorism. Today, officials announced they will redeploy troops. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. For about two months, the Pentagon has been talking about the growing al-Shabaab terrorist organization in Somalia being a threat to the U.S. Today, the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre explained why President Joe Biden has approved redeployment of hundreds of troops into Somalia. The president has approved a request from the Secretary of Defense to reestablish a persistent U.S. military presence in Somalia to enable a more uh, effective fight against al-Shabaab, which has increased in, in strength and poses a heightened threat. The move reverses a decision by former President Donald Trump to withdraw all troops in 2020. Trump, in December 2020, ordered the Department of Defense to reposition the majority of personnel and assets out of Somalia by early 2021 and said that the move was not a change in U.S. policy. Forces were repositioned into neighboring countries to allow cross-border operations. Jean-Pierre said Biden's decision was in furtherance of his counterterrorism approach. We're approaching counterterrorism in a manner tailored to the particular terrorist threats that we see uh, emerging from particular countries. Uh, today in Somalia, we face uh, al-Qaeda's largest and wealthiest uh, global affiliate and one that holds substantial territorial safe haven. Pentagon officials had criticized Trump's order. At a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing in March, General Stevens Townsend said Trump's order created new challenges and risks and that it was not effective or efficient. 
The Department of Defense plans to reposition forces that had been moved to bordering countries back into Somalia. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Texas is now able to move forward with child abuse investigations into parents and doctors who allow transgender minors to go through transitioning procedures, including puberty blockers and removal of sex organs. That's according to a Friday ruling by the Texas Supreme Court. It reversed a lower court's injunction, which temporarily blocked such investigations. These abuse probes are under Texas Governor Greg Abbott's directive to the state's Department of Family and Protective Services, or DFPS. In the same ruling, the state's highest court also halted an ongoing probe into a family who allowed their teenage child to go through transitioning procedures. The court wrote in its opinion that the DFPS does not legally have to follow the governor's order and can hold such investigations based on the agency's own judgment. And how old do you need to be before you can decide that you were born into the wrong body? Who should be having these conversations with minors? And what's the role of the traditional family here? One Colorado mom came face to face with these questions after her daughter's middle school facilitated a meeting designed to proceed without parents' knowledge. She says through these meetings, children are encouraged to question their gender and sexuality, and at the same time, they're being turned against their own families. Let's hear from her now. Erin, welcome. Your family's life was upended after uncovering a secret practice at your daughter's school. Could you tell us a bit more about what happened? Yeah, so last May, my shy, introverted daughter had just moved to a new school at the height of COVID protocol, and her trusted art teacher invited her one day to stay for art club after school. It was actually GSA Art Club, or Gender and Sexuality Alliance, um, or there's various names that they use for it now. And the art teacher had invited in an outside presenter who had absolutely no qualifications to speak with children about gender and sexuality. She used flags to describe various LGBTQ defining words, such as uh, being transgender means you're not fully comfortable in your body. She said that queer is a label you can use while you're trying to figure out your sexuality. She did the genderbred person activity with the kids, which explicitly asks who they're sexually attracted to. This was 11 through 13 year olds in the room. It also explains that gender and sexuality are never binary and has the kids plot their point on various spectrums of their gender and sexuality. She told the kids that their families might not be safe, that it's okay to lie to parents about where they are in order to attend this program and also future programming that she holds throughout the community. A lot of that programming is with adults. So she's inviting our 12-year-olds to attend secret sexuality programming with adults, um, both online and in person. She handed out her personal contact information to the children and encouraged them to connect with her, not just by phone and email, but on team chat platforms like WhatsApp and Discord, where she knows that parents are not monitoring the conversation. Um, she also handed out swag, stickers, bracelets, what she called the obligatory stickers and wristbands that kids love to collect everywhere they go. Um, and as my daughter left the room that day, her art teacher pulled her aside individually and said, remember, you don't have to tell your mom. And how did you respond? And what was the response you got back? So we're really fortunate that my daughter came home and told us what happened, um, despite being imposed with this rule that this meeting is supposed to be a secret. Um, so we're very fortunate. I could see on her face when I picked her up that day that something was wrong and that I probed and she told us what happened. Um, we remained calm enough to follow all the proper channels after this happened. So we contacted the woman who had given her personal information to our child first. Her response was delusional. She doubled down on everything that she did. Um, we then contacted the principal who confirmed that this in fact happened in secret, that they always hold these meetings in secret in order to provide a safe space for all children. I contacted the school board immediately who ignored my pleas for months. I sat down with the superintendent who made a lot of false promises and acted really empathetic to our situation and told us one thing and did completely opposite thing. Um, so that's why we chose to speak up. I contacted the police who told me that because there was no physical touch or body exposure uh, of parts, that there is no legal repercussion for what happened. Uh, but he did tell me that that doesn't mean it isn't wrong. Just because it isn't illegal doesn't mean I shouldn't speak up and warn other parents so that they can protect their children. And in your view, why are these clubs an issue? 
So, and that's, that's, that's the thing for us as a family that we don't, we, we condone inclusive programming. We don't think that there shouldn't be a space for LGB kids to connect and, and have community with each other. We very much don't agree with the secrecy that surrounds it. So they're intentionally hiding it from parents. They're really essentially treating parents like we're all evil until proven innocent. No one ever told me that this was happening. My daughter never expressed any gender dysphoria or any concern with her home life. And yet they assumed that I was not safe and they told her she didn't need to tell me about the program. So that's the issue. I mean, as her parent, I know what's best for my child. That's my child, not the school's child. And so I would never have allowed her to be subjected to that. It hurt her. There's irreparable emotional damage that was sustained that I can't take back. And I didn't have the opportunity to protect my child, yet they clouded it as they're protecting my child from me. Um, and we actually found out through FOIA requests that two days after the incident, the art teacher and the presenter were discussing sending CPS to our home because we objected to the program. Parents' rights in education is a nationwide issue, and it seems these gender and sexuality clubs are spread throughout multiple states. As a parent who's been through this experience, what do you see as the best path forward for families, for schools, and for society? Yeah, GSAs are everywhere. They've been around for a long time. Again, our issue is not with GSAs. It's not with inclusive programming for children. It's with this shroud of secrecy. It's with this move by school districts everywhere to exclude parents and the idea that children belong to the school district, not to the family. Um, so parents, again, have to take charge. They have to prepare their children for these kinds of conversations. We've been really open with our eight-year-old about how a, an adult should never tell you to keep a secret. And if an adult tells you to keep a secret, you immediately tell your parents because they are not safe. So we've, we've just got to demand transparency and we've got to vote at the state level, the local level, the school district level, and be open and communicative with our schools and our districts. Erin Lee, thank you. I reached out to both the principal and the school district, and they said they would not comment on specific allegations because it would breach students' confidentiality. And an update on that deadly weekend shooting in Buffalo, New York. The city's police commissioner says the shooter planned to keep on killing if he had escaped the supermarket, where he shot 13 people, killing 10 of them. And TD's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. A mass shooting at the Topps Friendly Market in Buffalo on Saturday has locals grieving and in shock. And it's, it's just so sad to me. I've never seen this since I've been in Buffalo. 18-year-old suspect Peyton Gendron is in custody after surrendering to police outside the supermarket. The officers immediately engaged the subject. Um, as it was said, he put the gun underneath his chin and our officers um, very courageously used every de-escalation tactic that they could. They talked him down. Eleven of the victims were black. Officials say the shooting was racially motivated violent extremism. It will be prosecuted as a hate crime. This is someone who has hate in their heart, soul and mind. Officials believe the suspect posted a manifesto online detailing his desire to make the attack. This was pure evil by one individual. The suspected gunman allegedly drove about 200 miles to Buffalo from Conklin, New York, a day prior to the attack. He shot outside the store and he shot inside the store. I heard at least 20 shots in store. Police say the shooter arrived in the afternoon and opened fire with a rifle outside the supermarket. He wore military-style clothing and body armor in the attack. The incident was broadcast live from a helmet camera on the streaming platform Twitch. Inside the store, he was confronted by retired police officer and security guard Aaron Salter. He fired multiple shots, but hit the gunman's bulletproof vest. Salter was killed when the shooter returned fire. He's, he was a nice guy, you know, he, he cared about the community, he looked after the store, he did a good job, you know, he was very nice and respectable. According to officials, the suspect had been detained and evaluated last year for a mental health check after making a school shooting threat. The state police responded. They investigated, they interviewed the subject, and they felt it was appropriate at that time to have that individual brought in for mental health evaluations. Gendron is being charged with first-degree murder, which carries a maximum penalty of life in prison without parole in New York. He has pleaded not guilty. The shooting left 10 dead and three injured. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is trying to keep the city safe 
after a deadly weekend with a number of shootings. The city's downtown already has a weekend curfew for minors, but now it's a little more strict. Today, I'm signing an executive order to move that curfew back on weekends to 10 p.m. The announcement comes after hundreds of teenagers congregated at Millennium Park in downtown Chicago over the weekend. That's the location of the famous bean sculpture. The teenagers reportedly got into fights, jumped on cars, and a shooting ended with one person being killed. Now, unaccompanied teenagers also won't be allowed into the park after 6 p.m. on the weekend. Bishop Edward Peacher addressed the public right before the mayor. He says he agrees with the new rules, but added there are certain things that only the church and God can fix. He urged the faith community to go out and spread love to bring peace to the city of Chicago. Coming up, British actress Zara Fithian, who starred in Doctor Strange, has begun serving a sentence of eight years in prison. She and her husband were convicted of sexually abusing a 13-year-old girl. The United States is facing one of the worst pilot shortages ever. Tens of thousands of pilots might be needed in the next decade. That and more here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why. What's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Thank you for Dr. Strange actress Zara Fithian has been sentenced to eight years in prison. This is for sexually abusing a 13-year-old child with her husband, Victor Mark. The BBC reports that Fithian and her husband were jointly charged with 14 counts of sexual activity with a child between 2005 and 2008. The couple, who were found guilty by a jury in the UK's Nottingham Crown Court, denied the offences. During their Monday sentencing, the judge said he believed Mark was the driving force behind the abuse. But he also emphasized that these factors do not excuse what Fithian did or the choices that she made. The actress's husband was also found guilty on four counts of indecent assault against another victim. The abuse allegedly began when the girl was 16 years old. Johnny Depp's defamation trial against ex-wife Amber Heard resumed today after an extended break. Heard picked up her testimony and, for the first time, faced cross-examination by Depp's legal team. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Actor Amber Heard testified under cross-examination Monday. Heard's ex-husband, actor Johnny Depp, is suing her for defamation. This is over a 2018 op-ed she wrote, alleging she was a victim of domestic abuse. Depp's legal team pressed Heard on the lack of hard evidence to back up several claims she made during her testimony that Depp abused her. So there's no medical records reflecting any injuries to your face after he hit you several times. I did not need to go to the doctor at the time. Despite hitting you several times that you lost count with rings on, your fi on his fingers. That's correct. Heard was pressed on the lack of medical records to back up her claims, as well as a lack of photos showing injuries caused by the alleged abuse. And there's no injuries to your face in this picture, are there? Not that this picture shows. Depp's attorney also asked Heard about her testimony, in which she said that in March 2013, Depp hit her while wearing a lot of rings and said it felt like her lip was going through her teeth and got blood on the wall. You didn't show any pictures to this jury after describing that alleged incident that your teeth, your lip went into your teeth. You don't remember that, right? I, you didn't I show any pictures to this jury after describing that incident, right? I don't believe I've seen that picture admitted. That picture doesn't exist. Cross-examination will continue on Tuesday. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A pilot shortage is hurting the airline industry, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Tens of thousands of pilots might be needed over the next decade. NTD's Faye Quarter has the details. 
The United States is being confronted with one of the worst pilot shortages in its history. Fewer pilots means higher prices for plane tickets, affecting the consumer. But why are we seeing this shortage right now? According to an expert, the problem has been building up for years now. The aviation industry has been booming since the 80s, but fewer pilots have been getting hired. One reason is far fewer Air Force pilots switch to commercial after their service. Well, the, the Air Force has gotten a lot smaller after the end of the Cold War, and we just haven't had a military that large to provide that ready pool of, of pilots in quite some time. So the problem was slowly growing, but it accelerated drastically in recent months. During the shutdown, global air travel dropped about 90% as a re result of COVID, and many of those pilots went and found employment elsewhere. Now that we're seeing air travel recover, the airlines are struggling to recruit those pilots back. He says many pilots switched to cargo planes, which were still operating normally during the lockdowns. So airlines now have to hire them back. Whether they come back might depend on financial incentives, but not only. The surety or the how comfortable they are that, that they're going to have long-term employment. But getting out of this shortage might take time. Noletti says, according to industry data, over 60,000 pilots might be needed over the next 10 years. Faye Quarter, NTD News. A group of lawmakers is sending a letter to the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, about the case of a fired Amazon worker. The NLRB is trying to force Amazon to reinstate the fired worker, but the lawmakers worry that the board is being biased. Here are the details. Amazon fired Gerald Bryson from one of its warehouses in April 2020 after he protested working conditions during the pandemic. The National Labor Relations Board in March of this year filed a court petition requiring Amazon to reinstate Bryson. The board argues that Amazon violated his rights under the National Labor Relations Act. In a letter to the NLRB, Republican Senators Richard Burr and Mike Braun and two House members argue that Amazon was justified in firing Bryson. They point out that the board ignored how Bryson was hurling obscenities at a female co-worker through a loudspeaker at the protest. The lawmakers say Amazon was justified in firing Bryson under federal anti-discrimination laws which forbid hostile work environments. The NLRB filed the petition almost two years after Bryson was fired and a week before Amazon workers at Bryson's warehouse voted to create the first union. The Congress members voiced concerns over the timing, saying the NLRB has jeopardized the neutral laboratory conditions necessary for an impartial election. The lawmakers point to how President Biden has said at the National Building Trades Union, Amazon, here we come. They are concerned that the NLRB will be employed as a weapon of intimidation to impose unionization. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The IRS is under fire for destroying 30 million tax documents in March of last year. That's according to the agency's watchdog. The reason? The IRS was too backlogged with paper filings and it couldn't process all that paperwork. The tax community isn't too happy about it. Many are worried the IRS won't be able to verify returns. And that could trigger more error notices. But the agency says, don't worry, it won't affect taxpayers. It said 99% of the documents were already processed. The IRS blames the issue on its outdated technology, but it says it plans to process all paper information returns received in 2021 and 2022. Usually, when the stock market isn't looking too hot, people put their money in other things, such as bonds or gold or crypto. But with those underperforming too, investors are staying put or holding cash. NTD Sean Marshall explores. The S&P is down. Gold is down. Crypto is down. Even bonds aren't doing well. What's a good place to park your money during this financial chaos? If you're a long-term investor and you want to grow your capital, there's hardly any places any better than the public stock markets. George C. is the chairman of Annandale Capital. C. believes some form of active management is wise. You have to be fundamentally driven. You have to look at businesses that are going to be sustainable. Cash flow is going to be king. Don Kaufman is co-founder of Theotrade, an online education service. Kaufman advises doing this during a period of great volatility. Stocks that have been decimated, just decimated, may actually hold some opportunities. Another area, real estate. I keep my money in real estate all the time. And the main reason is 
I make money in both the up and down markets. Steve Davis is the CEO of Total Wealth Academy, a real estate education platform. Davis says people should invest for cash flow, not asset appreciation. This is what he did in 2008 with his 4,000 apartment units. When the crash came, my property dropped in value 30%. I don't care, because guess what? My $80,000 a month was still coming in, and in fact, it went up because everybody was moving to apartments. Meanwhile, many are choosing not to invest at all. There's so much uncertainty in the market um, based, you know, because of inflation, because of the Fed, because of higher rates, that there's just there's just a lot of nerves. Greg Swenson is a founding partner at merchant banking firm Brig McAdam. Swenson says investor sentiment has really depreciated. Sean Marshall, NTD News. It comes as no surprise that managers are getting creative in retaining and attracting talent. There's a new leadership style that's getting popular with a focus on empathy and compassion. And TD's Phil Zoe has more. When it comes to management styles, is it better to be feared or to be loved? Traditional business models have always favored the former, a no-nonsense, getting-things-done attitude. But now, a new leadership style is emerging. There are so many ways to lead, and I think that empathetic, compassionate leadership is one of those trends that companies are trying to adopt, especially with younger workers. Denise Graziano is the CEO at Graziano Associates, where she helps Fortune 100 firms build teams and attract top talent. The best way for leaders to approach multi-generations of workers is to do so with a bit of a hybrid leadership approach. That means incorporating the new style with empathy, but also keeping some of the traditional management styles too. Type of workers have changed. The, the age of the workforce is in some cases five different generations of workers under one corporate roof. So you have to have that ability to nuance how you lead. We are living in what's called the great resignation. People are leaving their jobs and it's never been harder to keep talent. Uni Turatini is a human connections expert. She says this new leadership style is necessary. Culture of connection and belonging, where people feel that they have a sense of community at work and they are actually really happy to go to work, you get more productive people. You get people who are less sick and who are also more willing to help and contribute and to really give their best at every single moment. As of March, there are over 11 million job openings across the U.S. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Traditional Japanese food, music, dress, and more. A part of Manhattan dived into the culture of the Far Eastern nation this weekend. NTD's Arian Pazdar was on the scene and brings us the highlights. New York City's very first Japan Day parade being held here right next to Central Park. The main theme today, keeping tradition alive and sharing culture. Star Trek actor George Takei led the parade, which had something for pretty much everyone who's interested in Japanese culture. Traditional music, martial arts, and of course, food. The parade's host told me they have a few things they're trying to showcase. The techniques of martial arts or dance, or just the tradition of respect and paying honor to our ancestors. Respecting the elderly is important in Japanese culture, and the country even has a day for it, which translates to Respect the Age Day. Another thing that's very big in Japan, baseball. It was brought to Japan from the US exactly 150 years ago, and I was told people liked it right away. Back then, you know, every Japanese people loved baseball. So the, the most major sport in Japan would be baseball. Nowadays. Nowadays. And the sport apparently connects cultures to this day. When we try to understand America, we start from baseball. Also 150 years ago, the friendship between New York City and Japan started, which was celebrated at the parade. One fan traveled all the way from North Carolina to the Big Apple for the parade. Have my birthday here in New York and see the parade. After the parade, there was a street fair which had Japanese barbecue, ramen noodles and sweet treats. Now that's the end of the parade, but the festivities do go on with music, food and much more. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Coming up, certain California counties are planning to install cameras along major freeways. 
The governor is citing safety reasons after a spate of shootings have left several Californians dead, including a sheriff's deputy and a baby boy. And the NBA's defending champions are out, but not without an otherworldly performance by Giannis Adetokounmpo. And TD's Dave Martin breaks down his feet. That and much more coming up. Over to the West Coast. Officials are saying the California church shooting was politically motivated, but not by American politics. Despite being a U.S. citizen, the shooter targeted Taiwanese parishioners over disputes between China and Taiwan. NTD's Daniel Hall gives us the updates. Officials announced that the Orange County church shooting over the weekend was politically motivated. The suspect, 68-year-old David Wenwei Cho, was reportedly upset about the relationship between Taiwan and his home country of China. We do know that based on information we've collected, and I'm not going to go into the details of that evidence, uh, was a politically motivated hate incident, a grievance that this individual had between himself and the Taiwanese community at large. Sheriff's deputies booked Joe into the Orange County Jail on one felony murder count and five felony counts of attempted murder. He is a Chinese-born U.S. citizen with experience as a security guard. There's a lot of evidence that absolutely at this point in time indicates that the suspect had an absolute bias against the Taiwanese people, its country, as a Chinese or mainland national. China's ruling Communist Party has long threatened forced reunification of the neighboring island country. Taiwan's democratically elected party has steered the nation further towards independence. As for Zhou, he is being held on a $1 million bond. The suspect is eligible for life without the possibility of parole or death. The reason I was there is because at some point in time down the road, I will have to determine as a district attorney whether or not we will be seeking death. The shooting occurred at 1.25 p.m. at the Geneva Presbyterian Church following a Taiwanese service. Joe killed 52-year-old Dr. John Chung while he fought with the shooter. Five others were injured. Without the actions of Dr. Chang, it is no doubt that there will be numerous additional victims in this crime. Parishioners subdued Joe after he sealed the doors with superglue and chains. They hogtied Joe with an extension cord until law enforcement officers arrived to arrest him. Their actions potentially saved the lives of 40 other individuals. California's governor announced a list of new projects for the state's $300 billion spending blueprint. One of those is the installation of security cameras on state freeways. NTD's Eileen Nang gives us a look at where these cameras are going up. Governor Gavin Newsom is planning to add closed-circuit television cameras to freeways. The move is part of the $660 million allotted to public safety in this year's budget. About 200 advanced CCTV cameras will be installed at 50 locations throughout more populous counties. Parts of freeways in Los Angeles, Orange, Alameda, and Contra Costa counties will soon be under surveillance. The pilot freeway camera program comes after several freeway-related shootings. It took the lives of a two-year-old boy, a deputy sheriff, and others. In a statement, the Alameda County Sheriff said he is very thankful to the governor for keeping communities safe. He believes that the cameras will help deter violent crime on the highways and will be a useful tool to solve these very difficult cases should they occur. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Chris Paul says he's not retiring. He made the announcement last night just minutes after the Suns were blown out at home by the Mavericks in a shocking Game 7 display. Phoenix had the league's best record yet trailed by an unfathomable score of 57 to 27 at halftime. Paul, who turned 37 during the series, didn't hit his first shot until the third quarter when the game was already out of reach. Considered maybe the greatest point guard of all time, his resume still lacks an NBA title. 
Yesterday's other Game 7 saw the Celtics run away in the second half against the defending champion Bucks. The three-point shooting was a huge difference as Boston hit 22 of 55 threes while Milwaukee hit just 4 of 33. Giannis Antetokounmpo was a star of the series, though, becoming the first player ever to amass 200 points, 100 rebounds, and 50 assists in a playoff round. Yet he ran out of gas at the end. The two-time MVP hit just 4 of 15 shots after halftime as the Celtics ran away with the game. The NHL has now finished their opening round after a pair of Game 7 thrillers yesterday. The Rangers beat the Penguins in sudden death overtime to complete a 3-1 comeback. Sidney Crosby was back on the ice after missing Game 6 with an injury, but it was Rangers winger Artemi Panarin who scored the overtime winner at Madison Square Garden. Meanwhile, Calgary needed overtime to get past Dallas. Stars goalie Jake Ottinger had a remarkable 64 saves, but he needed at least one more as Flames winger Johnny Goodrow got one past him in overtime to send the Flames into the second round. Those second round matchups are now set as Calgary will face Edmonton, Colorado gets St. Louis, Florida takes on Tampa Bay, and Carolina will battle the New York Rangers. In other hockey news, the Islanders hired Lane Lambert as their new head coach. He replaces Barry Trotz. Lambert was previously his assistant. The 57-year-old played six seasons in the NHL before getting into coaching. This is his first head coach position in the league. The PGA Championship starts this week at Southern Hills Country Club and none other than Tiger Woods will be there. Woods, who previously committed to the British Open after making the cut at the Masters, told Golf Week that he's gotten stronger since then. Woods shot an opening round 71 at Augusta National, which features plenty of hills to walk before eventually bowing out with a pair of 78s. Woods has won the PGA Championship four times, last in 2007, when it was also played at Southern Hills. One player who won't be there is last year's champion, Phil Mickelson. Mickelson became the oldest ever to win a major when he won at Kiowa Island just 12 months ago at age 50. But he found himself in some controversy when he made comments regarding the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour and the country's record on human rights. Mickelson says the comments were off the record and shared out of context. That's all for sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, China's economic woes are fueling concerns of a global recession. Car sales in Shanghai fell 100% last month. Zero cars were sold. And McDonald's exiting Russia after three decades over the conflict in Ukraine. It's selling its Russian business. That and much more coming up on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. China's lockdowns aren't going away, it seems, and it's taking a serious toll on the economy. Shanghai reported a stunning 100% drop in car sales in April. Shanghai's Automobile Association says not a single car was sold last month. Almost all dealerships in the city were closed. This figure is a stark contrast to April 2021, where over 26,000 were sold. NTD's Don Ma has more. A 100% drop in car sales in Shanghai is the zero-COVID policy's latest impact on China's economy. This policy led to the closure of factories, it slowed down economic activity, and it disrupted supply chains. A number of news outlets are now reporting on concerns whether China's economic downturn will cause a global recession. Ethan Yang, political scientist and economic analyst at the American Institute for Economic Research, says that the worries may be slightly exaggerated. In the sense that I don't really see China playing as much of a role as most people might be worried about. I, I don't think that a recession in China and only China uh, would create a global recession. 
Yang says China is just one piece of the puzzle. Other factors like rising interest rates in the U.S. and the conflict in Europe should also be considered when talking about a global recession. So what people are worried about is not just China's economy, but they're also looking at Europe and the U.S. for what's basically a perfect storm of rising interest rates in the U.S. and a war in Europe. And so people are, I think most people are worried about that. Those three things, China, Europe, and the U.S., both having independent problems could cause a global recession. But on the other hand, it would be a different story if China expands its lockdowns from Shanghai to the entire country. If China does this, it could single-handedly cause a global recession. If they apply the zero-COVID strategy for months on end, and it continues to spread not just in Shanghai and Xi'an, but to other parts of the country, then you might be having uh, what might be a catastrophic meltdown in the Chinese economy, and that might push the world into a recession. The key word here, though, is might. It would still be a toss-up, even if China has a catastrophic meltdown. But again, I think you need to look at other countries, uh, not just China. I think if it's only China that's having problems, then you have uh, slower growth, but not a, not a recession in the sense that China does poorly. That makes things less comfortable around the world in terms of prices and supply chains. But by and large, the rest of the world might be okay. But that's, that's assuming the other two things go fine. If the two other things go well, meaning the U.S. can contain inflation and Europe can contain the war, then Yang says China's COVID lockdowns alone likely won't put the world into a recession. Don Ma, NTD News. The Chinese regime is tightening the country's border under the zero COVID policy. Some Chinese citizens even had their passports cut up at border entries. Let's take a look. China's National Immigration Administration announced last Thursday it will strictly follow Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping's zero COVID-19 policy in its border control operations. That applies to both those entering and exiting the country. The agency says it will conduct stricter screenings before allowing those going abroad for study, work or business from leaving China. Chinese Internet users reveal that earlier this month, Chinese border agents interrogated every passenger on a flight before they were allowed to enter China. The border agents asked them in detail why they went abroad, what they did abroad, and why they returned to China. If their answers were deemed unsatisfactory, the border agents would cut up their passports, making them invalid, so the passengers had to stay in China. Some passengers had to promise that they would not go abroad in the future to avoid having their passports invalidated. A Chinese man who left the northern Chinese city of Dalian for Japan over a month ago tells NTD what he saw at the airport before his departure. I saw passports being cut up when people came back to China. I saw over 20 passports being cut up at the border entry in Dalian alone. If you could get the documents to leave China, get them as soon as possible. If you can leave, leave quickly. This country is now really in an unstable state. It's closing its doors and the control is getting tighter and tighter. Some agencies that support Chinese students who plan to study abroad say that the Chinese regime has stopped issuing passports for elementary and secondary school students who want to study abroad. China's immigration agency last week denied that it is suspending passports and invalidating foreign green cards. They say they are still providing services for Chinese citizens making necessary trips abroad. But earlier last week, China's immigration agency said it would restrict non-essential exits of Chinese citizens. Russia has agreed to open a humanitarian corridor to evacuate the wounded Ukrainian soldiers in Mariupol's steelworks. But they can only go to a medical facility in a Russian-controlled town. Footage released by Kyiv shows that soldiers have reached the Ukraine-Russia border in the Kharkiv region, and some soldiers say Russian troops are withdrawing. NTD's Trevor Piper has this report. Russia said on Monday that it had agreed to evacuate wounded Ukrainian soldiers from the bunkers below the besieged Azovstal steelworks in Mariupol. The Russian Defense Ministry said in a statement that a humanitarian corridor has been opened for the soldiers to be taken to a medical facility in the Russian-controlled town of Novozovsk. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense on Sunday released a video it said showed its soldiers gathering near a blue and yellow boundary marker near the Ukraine-Russia border in the Kharkiv region. The footage showed men in military uniform gathered near a blue and yellow boundary marker and making various celebratory hand gestures as a man said they had reached the border. British military intelligence said Russia's offensive in the Donbass region 
has lost momentum and fallen significantly behind schedule. And Russia has now likely suffered losses of one-third of the ground combat forces it committed in February. The Kharkiv counter-offensive has been Ukraine's most successful since it expelled Russian troops from the north of the country and the area around the capital Kiev at the end of March. Ukrainian soldiers who retook a village in fierce fighting in early May said Russian troops are withdrawing across the border. After a decisive artillery attack, the Russians left really quickly. They did not have time to loot much. We saw it what we think were their headquarters, TV sets and other stuff. A lot of positions were abandoned, flak jackets and helmets laying around. Yet the soldiers are not ready to celebrate the victory. Russian soldiers are just two kilometers away. Every day we see them flying in. Every day they make attempts of counter-offensive, but we stand our ground. A small village north of Ukraine's capital, Kiev, played an important role early in the war. Ukrainian forces opened a dam in Demidiv, causing the Irpin River to flood the village and thousands of acres around. The intentional flooding of the village turns out to be a game-changing move, stalling a Russian attack on the capital. A villager said it was good for them to get flooded rather than be occupied by the Russians or become the front line. Kiev would have defended itself, so all the shells would land here. The other side would have fired in the opposite direction, and we would have become the front line. Some two months later, people in the village were still dealing with the aftermath of the flooding, using inflatable boats to move around and planting whatever dry swaths of land were left with flowers and vegetables. Trevor Piper, NTD News. No more Happy Meals in Moscow. McDonald's is selling its business in Russia, saying in a statement that due to the war in Ukraine, having its franchise there is, quote, no longer tenable, nor is it consistent with McDonald's values. The burger giant made its debut in Russia more than three decades ago, but temporarily shut down hundreds of its locations following the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. The chain is now ready to cut all ties in the country and is focusing on selling its entire portfolio to a local buyer. Officials say they hope to ensure its employees in Russia will have future job opportunities. And coming up, foodies gathered at a gastronomy festival in Paris where they sampled the finest dishes from top French chefs and some up-and-comers. And the Florence Nightingale Museum is now open again in London. Visitors can learn about the British woman who's often referred to as the founder of modern nursing. Stay tuned for more on NTD News after this short break. A food festival welcomed gastronomy professionals and gourmets to taste creations by award-winning chefs and artisan food producers. NTD's France correspondent David Vives takes us on an experience of culinary discovery. A lovely day indeed for gourmets and food lovers. The Taste of Paris festival is back after a two-year break due to pandemic restrictions. The four-day festival showcases Michelin-starred chefs, as well as big-name producers and artisans who share samples of their creations with Parisians and tourists. This signature dish brings together a dozen of different ingredients. This is our signature dish at Substance Restaurant. So we place a radicchio, a salad with Italian treviso, on a trout tartine that sits on top of a guacchiwi, a mix between guacamole and a kiwi. We put a smoky balsamic olive oil dressing on top. The festival is also an opportunity for visitors to taste some of the exceptional levels of gastronomy served in five-star Parisian hotels, such as Le Crayon. The hotel team attended with their restaurant chef Boris Campanella and pastry chef Mathieu Carlin. People want to go out to enjoy themselves. So you can see that everyone is consuming, everyone is smiling. There are very few masks. We are very happy to be here. And this allows us to show people what we are doing. The two chefs have worked together for 17 years. Here we have green asparagus from Provence, or an asparagus puree, smoked burrata cheese from Sicily, organic trout from Burgundy. And one inevitable stall is a 210-year-old Champagne producer. At Champagne de la Maison Laurent Perrier, our goal is to be there for the chefs. 
We want to find the best pairings for their dishes and make sure that our best champagnes go with their best dishes. He says sales are surging back after a slump during the pandemic. The festival also gives visitors a chance to try out chef recipes. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. The museum dedicated to the founder of modern nursing, Florence Nightingale, has reopened in London. Born in 1820, the British nurse revolutionized medical practice by improving hygiene to control the spread of infections. NTD's Joy Felix has the story. A famous lamp for a famous nurse, Florence Nightingale. Items owned by Nightingale are on display in the museum located on the grounds of Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. Items like this notebook from the Crimean War contain the details of the nurses' wages. The exhibition first opened in March 2020, just a few days before the country went into lockdown. During its closure, the charity which runs the museum has added more artefacts to the collection. But the highlight of the show is the nurses' lamp. And the myth about this lamp really started during the Crimean War when somebody printed a picture in the paper, a drawing of Florence Nightingale with her famous lamp as the lady with the lamp, and they featured this lamp. But it is completely wrong. Indeed, the real lamp looks nothing like a genie lamp. This is a Turkish lantern known as a fanous. A fanous. It's brilliant. You can hang it up, you can stand it on a table, you can carry it round. Best bit of all, it concertinas, so you can actually pack it away and put it in your bag for travelling. Perhaps one of the most intriguing items is Athena, Nightingale's pet owl. She rescued her in Athens as an owlet, who then accompanied Nightingale either on her shoulder or in her pocket. The head of the Nightingale Academy is appreciative of Nightingale's legacy, which still lives on. I think as a nurse in today's climate, you know, we, we are advocates of our patients and, and we should speak up, speak out, we should challenge and we seek, you know, the best for our patients or, or colleagues or whatever the situation is. But to have the courage to do that, and I think that's what Nightingale did. Closed since the start of the pandemic, the museum dedicated to the founder of Modern Nursing reopened its doors on May the 12th. Nightingale's birthday. Joy Felix, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.